there's tons of news, but I just thought that maybe today we could remember what it is about this country that we love and what some of the presidents who have come and served this country were all about. Because of course now in schools, it's much more important to teach your children how Heather has two mommies or how some penguin is not sure if it's a boy penguin or a girl penguin. No, no, we don't teach about the presidents. We teach all of this useless gender dysphoric nonsense. And look, do I believe that there's a place for teaching about sex education? I certainly do. It's called the home. But hey, I don't want to confuse the authorities with the facts. Parents and loved ones and churches should be teaching our children about such thing. And schools should be teaching our children about the presidents. This year, President's Day is today, Monday, February 21st. So which presidents do we celebrate on President's Day? And why do we commonly call it President's Day when the observed federal holiday is officially called Washington's birthday? Well, maybe it's time for us to learn the history of this day and the truth about a few common George Washington myths. Although the holiday is most often referred to as President's Day, the observed federal holiday is officially called Washington's birthday. Neither Congress nor the president has ever stipulated that the name of the holiday observed as Washington's birthday should be changed to President's Day. Additionally, Congress has never declared a national holiday that is binding in all states. Each state has the freedom to determine its own legal holidays. And this is why there are some calendar discrepancies when it comes to this holiday's date. So why is Washington's birthday commonly called President's Day? Well, in a sense, calling the holiday President's Day helps us to reflect on not just the first president, but also the founding of our nation and its values and what Washington himself calls in his farewell address the beloved Constitution and Union as received from the founders. Additionally, Abraham Lincoln's birthday is in February on the 12th, so by calling the holiday President's Day, we can include another remarkable president in our celebration as well. Today, many calendars list the third Monday of February as President's Day, just as quite a few U.S. states do too. Of course, all of the three-day retail store sales are called President's Day sales, and this vernacular has also been influential in how we reference the holiday. President's Day is observed annually on the third Monday in February. Of course, in 2022, we're celebrating today, Monday, February 21st. Now, historically, Americans began celebrating George Washington's birthdays just months after his death, long before Congress declared it a federal holiday. It wasn't until 1879, under President Rutherford B. Hayes, there's a name you don't hear often, that Washington's birthday became a legal holiday to be observed on his actual birthday, which was February 22nd. Washington's birthday was celebrated on February 22nd until well into the 20th century. In 1968, Congress passed the Monday Holiday Law 
to provide uniform annual observances of certain legal public holidays on Mondays. By creating more three-day weekends, Congress hoped to bring substantial benefits to both the spiritual and economic life of the nation. Today, George Washington's birthday is one of only 11 permanent holidays established by Congress. One of the great traditions followed for decades has been the reading by a U.S. Senator of George Washington's farewell address in legislative session, which remains an annual event even to this day. Although the federal holiday is held on Monday, George Washington's birthday is still observed on February 22nd. To complicate matters, Washington was actually born on February 11th in 1731. How can that be? Well, George Washington was originally born when the Julian calendar was in use. And during Washington's lifetime, people in Great Britain and America switched the official calendar system from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, something that most of Europe had already done in 1582. As a result of this calendar reform, people born before 1752 were told to add 11 days to their birth dates. Those born between January 1st and March 25th, as Washington was, also had to add one year to be in sync with the new calendar. By the time Washington became president in 1789, he celebrated his birthday on February 22nd and listed his year of birth as 1732. So to summarize, Washington's birthday changed from February 11th, 1731, that's the old style Julian calendar, to February 22nd, 1732, the new style Gregorian calendar. Legend has it that George Washington chopped down a cherry tree when he was six years old and when confronted by his father said, I cannot tell a lie. I did it with my hatchet. Well, we cannot tell a lie either. Washington didn't say this. He didn't even chop down the tree. This tale was in fact concocted by Pearson Mason Weems, one of Washington's biographers who made up the story hoping to demonstrate Washington's honesty. This tale is not the only myth about Washington. His wooden dentures, they weren't made of wood. They were made of hippopotamus teeth that had been filed down to fit into Washington's mouth. Upon entering office, Washington was not convinced that he was the right man for the job. He wrote, my movements to the chair of government will be accompanied by feelings not unlike those of a culprit who is going to the place of his execution. Fortunately for the young country, he was wrong. The federal holiday is officially recognized as Washington's birthday, though the federal government has never legally changed the holiday to President's Day. However, where it gets complicated is at the state and local level, as they do not need to abide by federal holidays. 24 U.S. states recognize President's Day only, while nine recognize Washington's birthday only and nine states do not observe any form of these holidays. Ultimately, for many, it is how you choose to honor this day. As a day to recognize Washington's birthday or Lincoln's birthday or even all American presidents, past and present. In Mount Vernon, they celebrate Washington's birthday with free admission to Mount Vernon. President's Day at Mary Washington's house, 
the Rising Sun Tavern, and the Hugh Mercer Apothecary Shop. George Washington's birthday parade and weekend festivities takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, on Washington's birthday holiday from 1 to 3 p.m. The George Washington Memorial, in honor of George Washington's birthday, well, you can get in there for free. Uh, It's always free of charge on February 22nd. And admission is free to the National Constitution Center on President's Day, whatever day that happens to be. There are 21 gun salutes and military personnel across the United States and overseas traditionally perform 21 gun salutes on President's Day. And many military units use President's Day as a time for service members to take their oath of citizenship. And the Great Aloha Run. This is a President's Day run that takes place in Hawaii and raises money for various Hawaii-based charitable organizations. Military units as far as Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan, which used to belong to us but doesn't any longer, have participated from afar to raise money as well. That's just a little bit of the history of our nation's first president, George Washington. In the next segment of the show, I want to share with you some of the incredible facts about the president who served, well, he was the 16th president of the United States, and he served shortly before the outbreak of the Civil War. And of course, for many people, he is the president most admired, although for many people, he's also the president least admired. Isn't that true about us today? Some of us love our current president, and some of us can't stand him. Same was true of our last president and the president before that. One thing about the great American experience is you are free to like, dislike, love, or hate the president. I'll be right back. Well, I want to talk about Abraham Lincoln. You know, many of us know only what we read when we were young kids in elementary school about Abraham Lincoln. Some of us who studied American history in high school and college, we know a little bit more. But one thing is for sure, there is a magic, a mystique about Abraham Lincoln. And certainly, he was one of the most noticed and talked about presidents ever, not to mention assassinated. Abraham Lincoln was a self-taught lawyer, not like a Kim Kardashian, but he actually hit the books. He was a legislator and a vocal opponent of slavery. He was elected the 16th president of the United States in November of 1860, shortly before the outbreak of the Civil War. Lincoln was a shrewd military strategist and a very savvy leader. His Emancipation Proclamation paved the way for slavery's abolition, while his Gettysburg Address stands as one of the most famous pieces of oratory in American history. In April of 1865, with the Union on the brink of victory, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth. Lincoln's assassination made him a martyr to the cause of liberty, and he is widely regarded as one of the greatest presidents in U.S. history. Abraham Lincoln was born on February 12, 1809, to Nancy and Thomas Lincoln 
in a one-room log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky. His family moved to southern Indiana in 1816, and Lincoln's formal schooling was limited to three brief periods in local schools as he had to work constantly to support his family. In 1830, his family moved to Macon County in southern Illinois, and Lincoln got a job working on a river flatboat, hauling freight down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. After settling in the town of New Salem, Illinois, where he worked as a shopkeeper and a postmaster, Lincoln became involved in local politics as a supporter of the Whig Party, winning election to the Illinois State Legislature in 1834. And like his Whig heroes, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, Lincoln opposed the spread of slavery to the territories and had a grand vision of the expanding United States with a focus on commerce and cities rather than agriculture. Did you know the war years were difficult for Abraham Lincoln and his family? After his young son Willie died of typhoid fever in 1862, the emotionally fragile Mary Lincoln, widely unpopular for her frivolity and spendthrift ways, held seances in the White House in the hopes of communicating with him, earning her even more derision. Now, Lincoln taught himself law and passed the bar examination in 1836. It was the following year that he moved to the newly named state capital of Springfield. And for the next few years, he worked there as a lawyer and served clients, ranging from individual residents of small towns to national railroad lines. He met Mary Todd, a well-to-do Kentucky belle with many suitors, including Lincoln's future political rival, Stephen Douglas, and they married in 1842. The Lincolns went on to have four children together, though only one would live into adulthood. Robert Todd Lincoln, Edward Baker Lincoln, William Wallace Lincoln, and Thomas Tad Lincoln. Lincoln won election to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1846 and began serving his term the following year. As a congressman, Lincoln was unpopular with many Illinois voters for his strong stance against the Mexican-American War. Promising not to seek re-election, he returned to Springfield in 1849. Events conspired to push him back into national politics, however. Douglas, a leading Democrat in Congress, had pushed through the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, which declared that the voters of each territory, rather than the federal government, had the right to decide whether the territory should be slave or free. On October 16, 1854, Lincoln went before a large crowd in Peoria, to debate the merits of the Kansas-Nebraska Act with Douglas, denouncing slavery and its extension and calling the institution a violation of the most basic tenets of the Declaration of Independence. With the Whig Party in ruins, Lincoln joined the new Republican Party, formed largely in opposition to slavery's extension into the territories. And in 1856, he ran for the Senate again that year, he had campaigned unsuccessfully for the seat in 1855 as well. In June, Lincoln delivered his now famous House Divided speech in which he quoted from the Gospels to illustrate his belief 
that this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. Lincoln then squared off against Douglas in a series of famous debates. Though he lost the Senate election, Lincoln's performance made his reputation. Lincoln's profile rose even higher in the early 1860s after he delivered another rousing speech at New York City's Cooper Union. That May, Republicans chose Lincoln as their candidate for president, passing over Senator William H. Seward of New York and other powerful contenders in favor of the rangy Illinois lawyer with only one undistinguished congressional term under his belt. In the general election, Lincoln again faced Douglas, who represented the Northern Democrats. Southern Democrats had nominated John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky, while John Bell ran for the brand new Constitutional Union Party. With Breckinridge and Bell splitting the vote in the South, Lincoln won most of the North and carried the Electoral College to win the White House. He built an exceptionally strong cabinet, composed of many of his political rivals, including Seward, Salmon P. Chase, Edward Bates, and Edwin M. Stanton. After years of sectional tensions, the election of an anti-slavery northerner as the 16th president of the United States drove many Southerners over the brink. By the time Lincoln was inaugurated as the 16th U.S. president in March of 1861, seven Southern states had seceded from the Union and formed the Confederate States of America. Lincoln ordered a fleet of Union ships to supply the federal Fort Sumter in South Carolina in April. The Confederates fired on both the fort and the Union fleet, beginning the Civil War. Hopes for a quick Union victory were dashed by defeat in the Battle of Bull Run, Manassas, and Lincoln called for 500,000 more troops as both sides prepared for a long conflict. While the Confederate leader, Jefferson Davis, was a West Point graduate, Mexican war hero and former Secretary of War, Lincoln had only a brief and undistinguished period of service in the Black Hawk War to his credit. He surprised many when he proved to be a capable wartime leader, learning quickly about strategy and tactics in the early years of the Civil War and about choosing the ablest commanders. General George McClellan, though beloved by his troops, continually frustrated Lincoln with his reluctance to advance, and when McClellan failed to pursue Robert E. Lee's retreating Confederate army in the aftermath of the Union victory at Antietam in September of 1862, Lincoln removed him from command. During the war, Lincoln drew criticism for suspending some civil liberties, including the right of habeas corpus, but he considered such measures necessary to win the war. Shortly after the Battle of Antietam, Lincoln issued a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which took effect on January 1, 1863, and freed all of the enslaved people in the rebellious states not under federal control, but left those in the border states loyal to the Union in bondage. Though Lincoln once maintained that his paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not either to save or destroy slavery. He nonetheless came to regard emancipation as one of his greatest achievements 
and would argue for the passage of a constitutional amendment, which outlawed slavery and eventually passed as the 13th Amendment after his death in 1865. Two important Union victories in July of 1863 at Vicksburg, Mississippi, and at the Battle of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania finally turned the tide of the war. General George Meade missed the opportunity to deliver a final blow against Lee's army at Gettysburg, and Lincoln would turn by early 1864 to the victor at Vicksburg, Ulysses S. Grant, as supreme commander of the Union forces. And in November of 1863, Lincoln delivered a brief speech, just 272 words, at the dedication ceremony for the new National Cemetery at Gettysburg. Published widely, the Gettysburg Address eloquently expressed the war's purpose, harking back to the Founding Fathers, the Declaration of Independence, and the pursuit of human equality. It became the most famous speech of Lincoln's presidency and one of the most widely quoted speeches in history. A little bit more on Abraham Lincoln when we return from this break. Stay right where you are. I want to finish up a little more about Abraham Lincoln, and I may very well share with you some of the great speeches. But in the meantime, suffice it to say that in 1864, When Lincoln delivered that brief speech, just 272 words, at the dedication of the National Cemetery in Gettysburg, people had to begin taking him more seriously. And some people began to take him so seriously and disliked him so intensely that everything was about to turn. In 1864, Lincoln faced a very tough re-election battle against the Democratic nominee, the former Union General George McClellan. But Union victories in battle, especially General William T. Sherman's capture of Atlanta in September, swung many votes the president's way. In his second inaugural address, delivered on March 4th of 1865, Lincoln addressed the need to reconstruct the South and rebuild the Union with malice toward none, with charity for all. As Sherman marched triumphantly northward through the Carolinas after staging his march to the sea from Atlanta, Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. On April 9th, Union victory was near, and Lincoln gave a speech on the White House lawn on April 11th, urging his audience to welcome the southern states back into the fold. Tragically, Lincoln would not live to help carry out his vision of Reconstruction. On the night of April 14, 1865, the actor and Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth slipped into the president's box at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., and shot him point-blank in the back of the head. Lincoln was carried to a boarding house across the street from the theater, but he never regained consciousness and died in the early morning hours of April 15, 1865. Lincoln's assassination made him a national martyr. On April 21, 1865, a train carrying his coffin left Washington, D.C. on its way to Springfield, Illinois, where he would be buried on May 4. Abraham Lincoln's funeral train 
traveled through 180 cities and seven states so mourners could pay homage to the fallen president. Today, Lincoln's birthday, alongside the birthday of George Washington, is honored on President's Day, which of course is today, the third Monday of February. Some of my favorite Abraham Lincoln quotes include, nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. He also said, I want it said of me by those who knew me best that I always plucked a thistle and planted a flower where I thought a flower would grow. He said, I am rather inclined to silence and whether that be wise or not, It is at least more unusual nowadays to find a man who can hold his tongue than to find one who cannot. Boy, that remains as true today as it was then. He also said, I am exceedingly anxious that this union, the Constitution, and the liberties of the people shall be perpetuated in accordance with the original idea for which that struggle was made. And I shall be most happy indeed if I shall be a humble instrument in the hands of the Almighty, and of this his almost chosen people for perpetuating the object of that great struggle. And he said, this is essentially a people's contest. On the side of the Union, it is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. This nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom And that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Well, now I'm going to talk about some of the other American presidents, ones that you probably know very little about, maybe don't even remember their names, but hey, it's President's Day, so just uh, humor me. How about Martin Van Buren, who was perhaps our schmanciest president? He wore outfits that make you regret he came along before there was color film. He served from 1837 to 1841, and an observer of an early Van Buren campaign stop at a church remembered him like this. He wore an elegant, snuff-colored, broadcloth coat with velvet collar to match. His cravat was orange-tinted silk with modest lace tips. His vest was of a pearl hue, His trousers were white duck. His nicely fitting gloves were yellow kid. How's that for remembering a president? Then there was William Henry Harrison from 1841 to 1841. He was the first president to die in office after just a month. Only recently have we realized that he was probably killed by Washington, D.C.'s lack of a sewage system. There was a giant field of human excrement a few blocks upstream of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and bacteria likely got into the White House's water supply. In 1841, John Tyler came along until 1845. He looked like a horse, but had a lot of energy 
and fathered at least 15 children. The last of them was born in 1860 when he was 70 years old. Two of his grandchildren are still alive. Then James K. Pock came along in 1845 till 49. He was almost picked off by the same dung-filled swamp that got Harrison. However, he survived to leave the White House and then immediately died of cholera. Zachary Taylor came from 1849 to 1850, not as lucky as Polk, and became the second president to be felled by the neighborhood's huge feculent pond. This era was not a high point of U.S. science. Millard Fillmore from 1850 to 53 is today best remembered as the inspiration for the name of Mallard Fillmore, the worst comic strip in human history. Franklin Pierce from 1853 to 57 completed the Gadsden Purchase of Territory from Mexico, buying a chunk of territory that uh, is now southern New Mexico and Arizona. Mexico was likely willing to sell because we'd simply stolen Texas a few years before, and they figured they might as well get some bucks this time around. James Buchanan came along in 1857 till 61. He often comes in last in historians' rankings of all U.S. presidents, thanks to his dithering as America drifted towards a civil war. On the upside, he's the basis for the most historically sophisticated masturbation joke ever made. Abraham Lincoln, of course, doesn't get enough credit for kicking off the golden age of presidential facial hair, a period of 52 years during which nine of the 11 presidents had a beard, mustache, or miscellaneous. Andrew Johnson from 1865 to 69 had strong feelings such as, this is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men. Also during a speech purportedly celebrating Washington's birthday, by the way, that's today, this holiday, Johnson mentioned himself over 200 times, shades of Barack Obama. It's difficult today not to wonder if there's a correlation between believing in white supremacy and constantly talking about yourself. Then Ulysses S. Grant came along in 1869 until 1877. He won the 1868 election, the first in which African-American men could participate by 300,000 votes. About 500,000 black men voted, providing Grant with his margin of victory. This was immediately noticed by white Americans who have gone on noticing such things ever since. And Rutherford B. Hayes, who took office in 1877, thanks to the grievously evil Hayes-Tilden Compromise. It was difficult to say who'd actually won the 1876 election, so the Republican Party agreed to withdraw all remaining federal troops from the South in return for Democrats accepting Hayes as president. Every promise of Reconstruction was betrayed. The white Southern plantation class took the opportunity and ran with it, essentially reinstituting slavery for the next 90 years. James Garfield in 1881 was nominated by the GOP as a compromise candidate on the 36th ballot after an exhausting fight between the party's delightfully named half-breed and stalwart factions. Chester A. Arthur was added to the ticket to keep his obstreperous fellow stalwarts happy. Then a stalwart assassin shot Garfield soon after he took office so that Arthur would become president. This should put today's intra-party Twitter spats in perspective. 
I'm going to take my final break. Don't forget, Dan Bongino coming up at 1 o'clock, Ben Shapiro at 4 o'clock, and we begin the madness all over again with Jen and Bill at 5.30 a.m. Stay right where you are. Ah, yes, where did I leave off in this humorous look at presidents? Chester Arthur, who came up in the staggeringly corrupt New York State Republican machine. The nation, it's been around since 1865, the magazine, called his origins a mess of filth. Frederick Douglass later said Chester Arthur allowed the country to drift towards the howling chasm of the slaveholding democracy. On the other hand, he had those great mutton chop whiskers. Grover Cleveland came along in 1885 till 1889, and then again in 1893 and till 1897, he was the only president elected to non-consecutive terms. Oh, I know another president who's looking for a non-consecutive term. It's got my vote. Grover Cleveland also appears to have been a rapist who brutally smeared his victim. In 1889, Benjamin Harrison, he came along. He had policies that were no great shakes, but he said some remarkable stuff that's been totally forgotten along with Harrison himself. He said, we Americans have no commission from God to police the world. He also said, things may be too cheap. They are too cheap when the man or woman who produces them upon the farm or the man and woman who produce them in the factory does not get out of them living wages with a margin for old age. He also said, when and under what conditions is the black man to have a free ballot? When is he, in fact, to have those full civil rights which have so long been his in law only? This generation should courageously face these grave questions and not leave them as a heritage of woe to the next. May not be memorable, but he sure said some smart things. William McKinley came along in 1897 until 1901, and he started America's extremely brutal colonization of the Philippines. One Kansas soldier told a reporter that the country won't be pacified until the Filipinos are killed off like the Indians impressively squeezing all of America's ugliest racial ideology into one sentence. Teddy Roosevelt from 1901 to 1909 was an appropriate choice for the U.S. at the dawn of the 20th century with its incipient industrialized genocides. I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indian is the dead Indian, Roosevelt said pre-presidency, but I believe nine out of every 10 are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the 10th probably why they've uh, taken his statue down from in front of the museum. William Taft in 1909 said he didn't want to be president and he wasn't good at it, but he was renominated in 1912 by GOP mandarins, even though they knew he'd lose, in order to block a rebellion from progressive rank-and-file Republicans. When we get back in four years, explained Senator James Watson of Indiana, instead of the damned insurgents, we will have the machine. Once you understand this kind of maneuver, politics makes much more sense. Woodrow Wilson came along in 1913, stayed there until 1921. It is a great lesson in never believing what politicians say about foreign policy. In 1916, he campaigned on the slogan, he kept us out of war. Then he led the U.S. into World War I, one month after his second inauguration. Warren G. Harding in 1921-23 to 23 would be more exciting if he had, in fact, as malicious rumors had it, been poisoned by his wife. Instead, 
He almost certainly died of a heart attack. Calvin Coolidge in 1923-29 believed that the chief business of the American people is business, which gets more profound the more you think about it. Moreover, he said it in a speech to the American Society of Newspaper Editors as part of an argument about why it wasn't a problem that the press was, as Coolidge put it, controlled by men of wealth. Herbert Hoover came along in 1929-33 to and he scorned for his dreadful response to the beginning of the Great Depression. But he was in many ways an incredible exemplary person and just a prisoner of the time's awful conventional wisdom on economics. The relief effort he led in the early 1920s before becoming president rescued untold numbers of Soviet citizens from starvation. Maxim Gorky told Hoover, your help will enter history as a unique, gigantic achievement worthy of the greatest glory, which will long remain in the memory of millions of Russians whom you saved from death. It was just Americans he left to starve. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, well, he was president for 12 years, yet not nearly long enough. Oh, that's right. In 1944, he called for the U.S. to have a second Bill of Rights, including the right to a job and the right to medical care. Talk about a man who is way before his time. He's AOC's hero. Harry Truman came along in 1945, from 1945 to 1953, the year I was born, and he was encouraged by his advisors to increase tensions with the Soviet Union while running for president in 48, because it would help him win. There's a considerable political advantage to the administration in its battle with the Kremlin. In times of crisis, the American citizen tends to back up his president to the detriment of everyone else on earth. Truman took his advice. Dwight Eisenhower from 53 to 61 did, let me explain, because of Dwight Eisenhower, there was a 9-11. He approved America's covert support for the 1953 coup that overthrew Iran's democratically elected prime minister and replaced him with the dictatorial Shah. The Shah allowed the U.S. to use Iran as a base for American power in the Mideast. We now know that when the Shah was finally overthrown in 1979 and the U.S. was kicked out of Iran, the Soviets were worried that America would try to take Afghanistan or that there would be a similar Islamist revolution there or both. The Soviets invaded, the U.S. funded the Mujahideen, and Osama bin Laden rose to prominence and got the idea it was easy to defeat superpowers, hence 9-11. Funnily enough, American Airlines Flight 77 which hit the Pentagon on 9-11, took off from Dulles Airport in Virginia. Dulles Airport is named after John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower's Secretary of State, and one of the main forces behind the 1953 Iranian coup. John F. Kennedy from 61 to 63, well, what can I say about JFK? He wouldn't recognize the Democrat Party. I can say that. Lyndon Johnson opined in a 1948 speech in Congress that without superior air power, America is a bound and throttled giant, impotent and easy prey to any yellow dwarf with a pocket knife. He then vigorously put these views into action during the Vietnam War. Richard Nixon, well, you know, it's Watergate. It's uh, calling him the most cruel and cynical human being ever to hold the U.S. president. And of course, it's my granddaughter's name. Gerald Ford was the first modern president to use his status to cash in after he left office, setting an example for everyone except Jimmy Carter, who followed. You can see pictures of one of Ford's homes, his huge mansion in Vail, Colorado. Note the seal of the president of the United States inlaid in the marble floor. Jimmy Carter, 
was actually a namby-pamby, weak-kneed, capital-L liberal. In fact, he commenced the turn to the right in U.S. politics that would accelerate under Ronald Reagan. Of course, he's changed a great deal since then and now calls the U.S. an oligarchy with unlimited political bribery. Ronald Reagan, well, he was the prototype for the final product that is Donald Trump. George Bush privately told Mikhail Gorbachev in 1987 that Reagan is a conservative, an extreme conservative. All the blockheads and dummies are for him. Bush also said to Gorbachev that he would have to use harshly anti-Soviet rhetoric while running for president in 1988, but that Gorbachev shouldn't take it seriously. Bill Clinton came along in 1993, and according to his Secretary of Defense, William Perry, he helped lay the groundwork for the today's terrible present-day relations between Russia and the U.S. While the problems today, I think, are mostly Russian activities, it is as much our fault as it is the fault of the Russians, at least originally. And he cited the expansion of NATO and Clinton's decision to send U.S.-led NATO troops to Bosnia in 1996. George W. Bush told a Bush family friend in 1999 that if he was elected, he wanted to attack Iraq because it would help him politically. Whew. And then Barack Obama in 2009 lived in Indonesia for several years just after a 1965 U.S.-supported coup and subsequent mass slaughter there. In his book, Dreams from My Father, Obama wrote, We had arrived in Jakarta less than a year after one of the more brutal and swift campaigns of suppression in modern times, rivers of blood once coursed through the streets. You can listen to Barack Obama reading that session in his audio version of the book. And Donald Trump, hey, one day he shall be remembered as the best president ever, at least by people like me. See, nobody likes President's Day. Polls routinely show that 130% of the population has no idea what President's Day is, when it happens, and if the kids have it off or not. Most people have the foggiest clue why we bother to celebrate President's Day, although I'm sure the answer is found in the second disc of Hamilton somewhere. Anyway, thank you for listening this President's Day. I hope you had a pleasant holiday, and I hope you learned something and maybe chuckled a little bit with the Joyce Kaufman Show. I'll be back tomorrow at noon, if it be his will, and he delays his coming. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America.